Philippians 3, verses 1 through 11. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs, look out for the evildoers, look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. This is the word of the Lord. Next Sunday, uh, we're starting our winter slash spring sermon series on the life of David. I would encourage you, if you can, and I think most of you can this week to read through David's story. First Samuel chapter 16 is where it begins and it goes all the way through basically the end of second Samuel. So take some time and read through that this week. We'll begin that next week. Usually on the first Sunday of the year, we spend a little bit of time uh, just kind of reframing our life together collectively around the vision we have as a church. And so that's what we're going to do this morning. And we're going to use these verses from Philippians three, hopefully to do so. C.S. Lewis, got to start with him, had the same personal secretary uh, for years and years and years. This, this man was uh, Lewis's secretary for decades. He knew Lewis before he became a Christian. He knew Lewis after he was converted. He knew Lewis after he had become quite wealthy as a result primarily of the Chronicles of Narnia series selling. And in Lewis's biography, the first biography written by Lewis, this man was asked what Lewis was really like. And he said this. He said that Jack was the most thoroughly converted man I ever met. He was the most thoroughly converted man I ever met. We started this church... Eight and a half years ago now, amazingly, to see people thoroughly converted. What do I mean? San Antonio is a partially converted city. And I don't mean like only some of the people in San Antonio are Christians, although, of course, that's true. What I mean is that um, San Antonio is a city religiously that experiences a lot of sabotage that prevents churches and believers from being what was said of C.S. Lewis, thoroughly converted. Um, there's a lot of knowledge about the Bible, some knowledge about Jesus, some good, solid Christian subculture values, but not a lot of gospel life. And that's the main reason we started Christchurch. Um, 
What is it that sabotages full, thorough, gospel-driven conversion? It's not what you might think. It's not hedonism. And it's not immorality. And it's not the liberals that have taken over the government. It's none of those things. It's primarily religion. And by religion, I don't mean like world religions. I mean the destructive and toxic self-righteousness that takes up residence in every single one of us by default. That's one of the main things that we noticed when we scouted out this city back in 2012. Like Paul says in Acts 17 of the Athenians, I see that you're a very religious people. People could say that about our city. But there's very little gospel Life. We've seen progress in that in the last almost 10 years by God's grace, and I hope that 2023 will be a year of more. And of all the Christians in the history of the world, I think it's safe to say that the Apostle Paul was one of the most thoroughly converted. They would have said that about him as they did about C.S. Lewis. And Paul writes this letter as an older man, probably in his later 50s, from a prison cell as on fire for Jesus as ever. So how did Paul get so thoroughly converted? How was Paul's life so radically centered on and wrapped up in Jesus and Jesus's gospel? And how can we be like that individually and as a church? This text is an anatomy of a thorough conversion. It's an anatomy of a thorough conversion. And here's when thorough conversion happens. It happens when this truth sinks deep into your heart and reorients everything about your life. Listen, God doesn't look at you based on your spiritual achievements. And God doesn't look at you based on your spiritual resume. God looks at you based on Jesus's spiritual achievements and based on Jesus's spiritual resume. Conversion, thorough conversion, is not just renouncing your failures. It's renouncing your efforts at your own righteousness. Your efforts to please God on your own apart from Jesus. Because we all have an innate desire to present ourselves as impressive and competent. This is what sabotages our full acceptance and embracing of the gospel. And it sabotages the transformation the gospel can bring. We do this with other people, we do this with God, and we do this with ourselves. We have an innate desire to pad our own resumes. And that's the most destructive thing for life transformation. Let's look at what Paul writes about it as we think about just for a couple of minutes this morning. He opens, as Rachel read, by warning these Philippian Christians to look out for the false teachers that he has some very kind words for here. He calls them dogs. And he doesn't mean like my golden doodle who's probably on my bed right now at the house. He means like street dogs, not a compliment. The evildoers, those who mutilate the flesh. He's referring here to his theological antagonists who followed him everywhere he went as a church planter and whom he mentions in virtually every letter he writes in the New Testament. These, these teachers taught a different gospel than Paul did, and they were poisonous to the early church. They were known as Judaizers. And here's what Judaizers said. They said to young Christians, hey, we hear that you've trusted in Jesus for salvation and that you've experienced forgiveness of sins, and that's great, but that's not enough. It's not enough. Jesus is essential, the Judaizers say, but Jesus is not sufficient. 
You have to add on more to what Christ has done. And in the Judaizers' case, it was becoming Jewish, which is why they were called the Judaizers. So Paul warns against this in every letter he writes. In Galatians, he calls it another gospel. He says that Christianity is Jesus plus nothing. If you add anything to the grace of Jesus, it's not any longer the grace of Jesus. And he teaches us this in Philippians here by telling us a part of his own story, by giving us an anatomy of his own thorough conversion of what he had lost and what he had gained. Let's look at it together. Two points briefly this morning. First, Paul tells us the surprising worthlessness of gaining everything. The surprising worthlessness of gaining everything. He counters the teaching of the Judaizers But before we get to his story specifically, I I want you to understand this about the Judaizers because we tend to demonize them in our minds. We think of them as dark and evil and wicked men. But here's the thing. The Judaizers wanted to be obedient to God, to the real God, to the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And because the Judaizers wanted to obey God, the things that they demanded of churches in the first century were not, they were not in and of themselves bad things. In fact, they were very, very good things in most cases. They knew that a holy God must be approached with purity, and they were right in that. They knew that there was a chasm between a sinful human and and a righteous God. But their critical misunderstanding, and here's what you've got to get, my friends, their critical misunderstanding regarded how we can be acceptable to God. The Judaizers taught that acceptance with God comes to some degree from our own spiritual resume and our own spiritual accomplishments, from what we do, not what God does. And so Paul's whole purpose was to counteract that idea, which he does here with his own story. Look at what he says, verses 4 through 8. His basic argument is this. Okay, fine. You guys want to compare human achievement and morality. Let's do it. Then he proceeds to give his own spiritual resume. Verse 4. You could probably sense it as Rachel read it. If anyone has a reason for confidence in the flesh, for human achievement, for religious attainment, for moral perfection, I have more. And then he lists seven things. Circumcised on the eighth day, the people of Israel, tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. Those are all things that he had no control over. He's saying, I'm a pure blood, pure bread Jew of Jews. And then the last three things, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. Those things he did have control over. He's saying, I diligently strove for and devoted my life to obeying God's commandments, doing what God tells me to do. And he is one of the most amazingly religious, moral, and impressive people in the world. At least that would have been the case in the mind of any ancient Jew. He had gained everything Paul had as an ancient Jew. He was more religiously committed than any of us, without question. He was more righteous than any of us. He was more faithful than any of us. He was more obedient than anyone he knew. He's not exaggerating when he lists his spiritual resume here. But Paul tells us that something happened to him. Something surprising. Something remarkable. Something that turned his entire view of himself and of God and of others upside down. The way he gauged value and the way he gauged worth were completely altered. The items that he lists on his resume have completely changed. What was it? Paul met Jesus. Paul met Jesus of Nazareth. 
raised from the dead, and now the ruling king of the universe, Paul had a transformative encounter with the crucified and resurrected Messiah. And this reoriented his entire life. Nothing was ever the same for him. We can kind of understand what it's like to have our entire lives reoriented, can't we? Remember when you had your first child? That reorients everything immediately. Like literally, immediately, the next morning when you haven't slept at all the prior night. Kind of like how some of y'all feel right now, New Year's morning. What is going on, right? Just completely different. And your friends want to go play basketball or go out or do whatever. And you're like, I I can't do it anymore. And they're like, what's going on with this guy? Well, his life has changed because this infant has stolen everything from him and entered into his world and changed everything. His entire life, your entire life is is reoriented. It's never the same after you become a parent. In a similar way, that's what had happened to Paul. And it's very clear when we see how he views what he once held to be most important now, post-meeting Jesus. Look at what he says in verse 8. Whatever gain I had, I consider loss, verse 7. For his sake, verse 8, I count these things as rubbish, as dung, as garbage, as trash. Rubbish, he says. What is it that makes him say that gaining everything is a huge pile of trash? It's the surpassing greatness of Jesus, he says. What he has found in Jesus makes everything else he has ever achieved look like rubbish. Gaining Jesus rendered Paul's resume worthless. Do we live like that is true for us? Do we? Do we live as if our resumes, as if our impressive moral and religious achievements are completely and utterly worthless? Totally worthless. Trash, dung, manure. I could use stronger words and it would be appropriate for what Paul says about them in refrain because, it's, because I'm growing in 2023. We know even only with the moment's thought, we really, I think we all have to admit that all of our emotions and our hearts are structured on this system of spiritual achievement. The system that we must amass a resume to get in or we will be left out. Think about it. Think about it. We relate to others in the Christian life so often based on resume, based on spiritual achievement. We relate to others by comparison, by comparative adherence to standards of right and wrong, of acceptance and rejection. We're living based on resume, based on our own achievements. And what that creates, by the way, is fragile community. It creates fragile community where we're afraid to let our guard down and be who we really are, not just in our beauty, but also in our brokenness because we're afraid that we're going to be rejected, that we're going to be put out. It creates a radical lack of assurance, excuse me, an environment based on fear because you can never know if your resume is good enough. We relate to each other that way. We also relate to ourselves this way. I think that's less obvious But it's just as true. We set standards for ourselves, especially this time of year. And and if we don't measure up, we beat ourselves up and we have this self-hatred. Listen to this quote from uh, Madonna, of all people. Madonna, 
did an interview with Vanity Fair magazine a number of years ago. And at one point she writes this, and I found this to be a striking example of the way so many of us live. Listen, she says, quote, I have an iron will, and all of my will has always been to conquer some horrible feeling of inadequacy. My drive in life is from this horrible fear of being mediocre. And that's always pushing me, pushing me, because even though I've become somebody, I still have to prove that I'm somebody. My struggle has never ended, and it probably never will. Is that the way you feel? You know that's happening in your life, by the way, when you have a lack of joy. When you have a lack of joy, particularly surrounding your communion and relationship with God. When there's a lack of confidence or stability in your discipleship. When your discipleship feels like a drag. When it's weighing you down, you know you've focused not on who God is and his merits, but on who you are or want to be in your merits. It's a lack of thorough conversion. It affects the way we relate to one another. It affects the way we relate to self. And my goodness, it affects the way we relate to God, our achievement mentality. Every single one of us, the scriptures teach, naturally approach God this way. Here, God, look at me. Look at what I have done. That largely explains, by the way, as a side note, the popular belief that all religions are basically the same. That actually is true, I think, with one exception. All religions are basically the same because they all are trying to say in one way or another, here's how you can become acceptable to the divine. The difference between religion and the gospel of Jesus Christ is that the religion is about me at the end of the day and the gospel is about Jesus at the end of the day. Religion says... And there's Christian forms of this that are sub-Christian. But they say, if I obey God's rules, he will love me. The gospel says, even though I have disobeyed more than I even dare admit, God has set his love on me. And even Christians continue to attempt to approach God with this sort of resume mentality. And that's what inhibits thorough conversion. We still... Listen, we still harbor in our mind and in our heart a belief that God is upset. That God is angry. That God is frustrated. Or that God is disappointed in us. Because of all of our failings and all of our sins. And that we will never be in his good graces. Because we all know deep down that our resume isn't good enough for God. By the way, this teaching... And this mindset is why you may have left the church before and not wanted any part of it. If you grew up in church, like so many of us did, sometimes all we're taught is behavior modification to help overcome our sin problems. You weren't given any good news. You were just given good advice. That's what San Antonio is. That's why we came here. We don't need more good advice. We need good news. Paul always knew sin was a problem. You think Paul changed by learning that sin was an issue? No. Paul knew sin was an issue. What he didn't get was that his biggest problem wasn't all the bad things he was doing. It was his pretended righteousness. Paul's issue isn't a list of bad things. His issue was his list of good things. And he's given us his very best things in this text and saying these are trash. When you think of Christianity 
as being about stopping to do, stopping doing the bad things to get God to be happy with you. You're not thinking about Christianity. You're thinking about religion. You're thinking about moralism. You become a Christian when you realize that trying to do good things to please God is what you need to repent of. And that you need a completely different sort of righteousness. That's a thorough conversion. That's what Paul gained. And when he gained it, everything else was worthless to him. The surprising worthlessness of gaining everything. Secondly, Paul talks about the surpassing worth of gaining Christ. He tells us that what made all that he had gained, all these good things that people admired him for and that he often felt good about himself for, all these things from his prior life, he says, are now worthless because he came to know and he gained Jesus Christ. He says it there in verse 9, verse 8, that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Gaining Christ means being found in him. What does that mean? This could be three or four sermons, but I'll make it brief here. Paul fleshes it out there in verses 9, 10, and 11. He tells us that gaining Jesus, being found in Jesus, consists of three big, huge things. First, look at at verse 9. He's found in him not having a righteousness of my own. He gains Jesus' righteous status. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes through the law, through obedience, through morality, through human effort. But, on the other hand, a righteousness which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God that depends on faith. That verse is the heart of the gospel. The beauty of the gospel is that when we gain Jesus by faith, we gain Jesus' righteousness. And can stop trying to get our own. That revolutionized Paul's life. It revolutionized his life. And the world has been changed because of that. Now look at what he says. Being found in Christ means that he now depends not on gaining his own righteousness, a righteousness that came through his obedience, but it depends on the righteousness that Jesus gives him 100% for free. When we gain Jesus, we gain Jesus' resume. We now have in Christ a just as if I had never sinned status. We have a just as if I had never sinned status. You are, if you're in Christ, if you've gained him, just as righteous before God as Jesus. That brings freedom from the self-defeating effort of trying to gain our own righteousness, trying to get in with God, with others, and even with ourselves based on our own resume. You're completely covered and caught up in Jesus' perfection, in the righteousness he gives you freely. Have any of you ever had like a super famous friend? I haven't. (laughs) Some of you might have. And uh, you're, you're hanging out with people and you think, I'm with that guy, right? I remember seeing, uh, reading about this event. Actually, it's on video. You can find it on YouTube. After the Grammy Awards a number of years ago, there was all these after parties, which apparently there are at the Grammys. And um, there was this big party that Paul McCartney, lead singer of the Beatles, right? You should know who that is because it's about your spiritual resume. You need to know that. Um, Paul McCartney, lead singer of the Beatles, uh, and this big group of people are trying to get into this kind of VIP event after party at the Grammys. And the, the, the bouncer doesn't see McCartney because McCartney's kind of behind these other people. And the bouncer won't let these people into the party. He's like, no, you're not on the list. You are not on the list. You can't get in. You're not on the list. And then McCartney comes up to the front of the line. And they're like, I'm with him. And the bouncer's like, okay, come on in. That, that's how it is, Jesus. 
we can always say to God, I'm with him. And whatever he has, he has given to me. And however you, God, view him, Jesus, is now how you view me. If you're in Christ, you're with Jesus. And he's promised to never, ever cast you out. That's the problem we face. We feel like Jesus is going to cast us out. We feel like Jesus is going to cast us out. We we became Christians by faith, but we now want to continue by works. We think suddenly God has changed his mind on us, and it depends on us. John Bunyan, the great Puritan, wrote a book called Come and Welcome to Jesus Christ. Uh, Dane Ortland talks about it in his recent book, uh, Gentle and Lowly. And, and Bunyan is addressing this issue that we tend to believe that Jesus is actually going to cast us out. And, and, and he writes this. Listen to what Bunyan says. There is no objection that can be made upon the unworthiness that you find in yourself that this promise will not calm. Do you hear that? There is no objection that can be made upon the unworthiness that you find in yourself that this promise will not calm. But I'm a great sinner, you say. I will never cast you out, says Christ. But I'm an old sinner. I've been doing this for a long time. I will never cast you out, says Christ. I'm a hard-hearted sinner, you say. I will never cast you out, says Christ. But I've served Satan all my days, you say. I'll never cast you out. But I've sinned against light and mercy, you say. I'll never cast you out, says Christ. I have no good thing to bring with me, you say. I will never cast you out. We gain Jesus' righteous status if we're found in him. And if we've gained that, everything else is worthless. Second, we gain his resurrection power. I've got to go quick here. That Jesus, or Paul says in verse 10, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection. We don't just gain his righteous status, but in gaining Jesus, we, we truly share in his resurrection, not just in the future, but in a sense now in the present. When we gain Jesus, we gain the power of his life, which defeated death. We gain the power of freedom over sin, which he won. We gain the power of the spirit that he gave at work in us. And, and then third, we gain redemptive suffering, his redemptive suffering. And may share in his sufferings, Paul writes, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection of the dead. Now, that may not sound like good news off the cuff, but it's incredibly good news. Here's a way to look at it. Every single scrap of suffering that we will ever undergo is going to be used by God to make us more like Jesus. Every single scrap of suffering that we will ever undergo is going to make us more like Jesus in his death And also in his resurrection. You see, just like Jesus, we experience death. Many deaths, in a sense. And then ultimately, the final death, which is the last enemy. But just like Jesus, we too experience resurrection. And every bit of our suffering is designed to follow the pattern of Jesus' suffering. Which means that every single piece of our pain is taking us further down the path to resurrection. To redemption. To peace. To life. To the joy set before us. Here's what I want to say. What would it look like for our church and our city to become more thoroughly converted? What would that look like? It looks like really living as if we have gained Christ and his benefits. If that's true, our resumes are rubbish, as Paul says. It looks like, it looks like 
confident assurance. Do you have that? You have it in us. You really do. Whether you feel it or not, you've got it. You've got confident assurance. You can take risks for God's kingdom. You can do bold and crazy things for God's kingdom. Because God's love is set upon you assuredly. It it looks like bold joy. Joy. Not the doldrums of religious life. We want no part of that. Bold. Happy. Redemptive joy. Even when life sucks, we can feel it. It looks like vulnerable and honest community where people really know you. And where you really know people. And despite you really know peop- you really knowing people and people really knowing you, there's a sense of love and warmth and acceptance and gratitude and generosity and hope. Because just like God has given you Jesus' righteous status, he's given each of us Jesus' righteous status. And we gain in Jesus one another. So we can be open. We can be vulnerable. We can have true friendships. It looks like heartfelt allegiance to our Father. Not not a dutiful, fearful, obedient-only allegiance, but allegiance that flows from knowing how much your dad in heaven loves you. He gave you his son so that he could bring you home. And so your allegiance to him, your obedience to him, your faithfulness to him, your generosity to him and to others is, is flowing out of a heart that's being captured by grace in faith. Let's go for that this year. A.W. Tozer once said that faith is the gaze of the soul upon a saving God. Faith is the gaze of the soul upon a saving God. And that faith produces these things. It produces thorough conversion. That's why we started this church. And that's what we're still after. That's what we still want. I want it for you. I want it for me, for crying out loud. I want it for our city. May it be true that we can really believe that if we have gained Christ, we can toss our resumes out the window because they don't matter. Amen? Let's pray.